Welcome to the Power Hour. I'm Adrienne Herbert, wellness coach, international speaker and author. Each week I speak to a variety of guests from business founders to Olympic athletes, leading coaches, change makers and innovators to find out their daily habits, their rules to live by and what motivates them to get up out of bed each day. Personally, I am on a mission to encourage, motivate and inspire. So I hope that the Power Hour will help you to achieve your personal and professional goals. Welcome back to the Power Hour podcast. Today I'm joined by best-selling author David Brooks. David is a columnist for the New York Times and has previously written books drawing from the fields of psychology, neuroscience, history and education. And his latest book, How to Know a Person, is a thoughtful and practical guide to the art of truly knowing another person to help foster deeper relationships. David, welcome to the podcast. Oh, it's good to be here. I'm, I'm honored. Thanks for your invitation. Yeah, I'm really looking forward to this. I know there's so many things that we could discuss. So let's just dive straight in. Relationships. Relationships are, of course, incredibly important. And we all have them in our work, in our homes, our family, our friends. Some relationships can be great. They can make us feel great. They can make us feel good. Other relationships can be a lot more challenging. So in your book, you talk about diminishers and illuminators. So I think it's a good place to start. First up, could you explain to us what those things are? Yeah. So the, my core thesis is that there's one skill at the center of any healthy relationship, any healthy family, community, organization, or society. It's the ability to make people feel seen and heard and understand and respect them. And this is a skill. This can be taught just the way carpentry can be taught or learning to sail or tennis or anything like that. And so my general theory is there are two groups of people uh, in any community, and some are diminishers, uh, and they are not curious about people. They never ask questions. And I sometimes leave a party and think, you know, that whole time nobody asked me a question. I think like only about 30 or 40% of people are question askers. The rest are just not curious. And diminishers stereotype, they ignore, they have generalizations. They do a thing called stacking, which is if I learn one fact about you, then I can make a whole series of assumptions. Oh, you must also be like this, 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 and this. And nobody fits stereotypes, uh, mm -hmm. so uh, stacking is, is wrong. Illuminators, on the other hand, are curious about you. They make you feel valuable, lit up. They sort of see the world from your point of view, even if just a little. And so, for example, about a century ago, there was a novelist in Britain named Ian Forster. And his biographer wrote of him, to be with him was to be seduced by an inverse charisma, a sense of being listened to, with such intensity, you had to be your sharpest, most honest, best self. There's a story, maybe apocryphal, told about a woman named Jenny Jerome. And she would go on to become the mother of Winston Churchill. But when she was a young woman in Victorian England, she happened to be seated next to William Gladstone, the prime minister. And she left that dinner thinking that Gladstone was the cleverest person in England. Then a couple weeks later, she happens to be seated at another dinner party next to Gladstone's great political rival, Benjamin Disraeli. And she leaves that dinner thinking that she is the most clever person in England. So it's good to be Gladstone. It's better to be Disraeli. And one mm -hmm. final story, there's a famous research lab named Bell Labs. And they, were, they noticed that some of their researchers were way more creative and innovative than others. And they wanted to know, why are these people so much better? And they checked out their educational background, their IQ. They couldn't find the answer. And the answer was that the most creative innovators were in the habit of having breakfast or lunch with an electrical engineer uh, named Harry Dibble. Uh, and he 
over breakfast and lunch, he would get inside their heads, ask them about their the problems they're dealing with, and help them think it through. And he made them better. He illuminated them with his attention and his curiosity. And so the purpose of the book is to help us become a little better at being an illuminator and a little less a diminisher. Mm, wow. It's, yeah, I love this. It's so fascinating, isn't it? Especially as I was at an event this morning in central London. It was a busy event where I was speaking on a panel and then afterwards there was a breakfast. And of course, that kind of network of people, you know, talking and, and asking questions and mingling. And it's interesting what you just said about the party where, you know, you can go to a party and leave and think, nobody asked me a single question and i'm wondering when you say that maybe it's different in a social party to kind of maybe a more professional working environment like an event this morning but i'm wondering whether some of the kind of modern world the kind of idea that we have to we're going to come on probably to talk about this later about perception but this idea that we have to curate a version of ourselves to portray online or to kind of have an elevator pitch if someone asks you you know what you do or who you are and so i sometimes think that if anything, people might feel a pressure that they have to um, almost impress people. So the people in the room, they've got to talk about themselves and what they do and who they are and kind of, you know, yeah, impress people or kind of make people hear more about them. And as you said, that might be the reason, maybe, I don't know, um, that actually they're so keen in their two minutes when they first meet someone or their five minutes at the at the breakfast to to almost validate who they are rather than to like you said be curious about the other people at the table and say who are you and not just who are you and what do you do but actually you know how was your morning or you know I saw a lady today that was pregnant and I was asking her loads of questions because I was just excited oh when is your baby due and do you have any other children is it your first baby I just talked to her about pregnancy I didn't actually I had no idea what brand she worked for or what her role was um and so do you think that sometimes that kind of perception piece is playing into people's behavior now because they have to almost curate to the world this version of themselves yeah well let me um, as you're talking I'm thinking about how do you impress somebody and so let me tell a story i was i was calling a, a friend of mine who used to work in the obama white house and he was in the white house we're having a conversation and i'm on my cell phone and the call drops and so i think oh, i'll call me back in a minute or two and so i wait a minute or two then i wait five minutes then i wait seven minutes and he hasn't called me back. So I call his office and his assistant says, oh, he can't talk, he's on the phone. And I said to her, no, he doesn't understand. He's on the phone with me. He's been bloviating at me for 10 minutes and he has no idea I'm not there. And so when somebody does that to you at a party or out for coffee, you really are you impressed by that person? No, you're not impressed. Mm. Uh, if you really want to impress someone, be curious about them. Uh, mm. There's research on this. If you really want to persuade someone about something, it's more persuasive to listen than to talk. <laughs> that if you mm. ask them a series of questions that get them talking about things and here's how I see it, how do you see it, then you're much more likely to persuade them. People only change after they feel understood. And so if I find the most people I find most impressive are the people who, they're illuminators. Uh, so one final story on this point. I was at a, a diner in Waco, Texas with a woman named LaRue Dorsey who was 93, and uh, she presents herself to me as a stern disciplinarian. Like she was a teacher and she said, I love my students enough to discipline them. And so I'm like, wow, this lady is formidable. Into the diner walks a friend of mine, a friend of both of ours named Jimmy Durrell, who's like a pastor, he pastors to the homeless. He goes up to Mrs. Dorsey and he shakes her by the shoulders, way harder than you should shake a 93 year old. And he says, Mrs. Dorsey, Mrs. Dorsey, you're the best, you're the best, I love you, I love you. And that stern disciplinarian that I'd been talking to turns into a bright, eye-shining nine-year-old girl. 
the power of attention that he cast upon her brought forth a different version of her, a better version of her. And so it, that's what we're trying to do. And if, if, we, if we greet people with respect, then they'll think, wow, that person's very impressive. <laughs> and so if you want to impress, mm -hmm. listen more, talk less. Yes, exactly, because it's how you make people feel. That Even the word illuminator, we know when we're around people that illuminate us, we become more, uh, we might become more enthusiastic, more energized, or maybe just more relaxed, actually. We might feel less, yeah. less uh, tense. So, and you've mentioned this word a few times, listening. Now, of course, listening is a skill. And just as you mentioned before, any skill can be learned, just like playing tennis or baking. But listening, I think, is a skill that some people think, oh, they're a good listener um, and they may be just good at that. And other people will say, oh, this person's a terrible listener. You know, they interrupt and they like to talk. And, and I think listening is something that we hear a lot about, you know, how we should all be better listeners. But I don't think it's something that many people actively practice. So I guess the first question is, in some situations, I think it can be easier to listen. So for example, maybe in a professional setting, you might be in a meeting where you feel like it's it would be inappropriate to just interject, so you listen. But I'm interested more in interpersonal relationships when there's emotion involved, when there might be conflict. How? What are the first things that we need to consider when it comes to becoming a better listener? Yeah, so in the book, I have a whole bunch of practical tips that I, I didn't invent these myself. I got these from experts conversation experts. So some of them are um, treat attention as an on-off switch, not a dimmer. When you're with somebody, your attention should be 100% or 0%. Don't try to 60% it. Another is make them authors, not witnesses. When people are telling you a story, they don't go into enough detail. So if you say, oh, well, where was your boss sitting when she said that to you? Suddenly they're in the scene and they're telling you a story and you get a much richer version of themselves. Another is I, I no longer ask people um, what do you think about this? I ask, how did you come to believe this? And that way they're telling me a story about some person who influenced their values or some experience they had, getting a fuller version of themselves if I can get them into story mode. Another one is don't be a topper. So if you tell me you're having problems with your teenage son, my instinct is to say, oh, I know exactly what you're going through. I'm having problems with my Tommy. And it sounds like I'm trying to relate. But what I'm really doing is, let's, is saying, let's stop talking about you. Let's talk about me. And yes. so don't be a topper. That's what I'm guilty of all the time. Uh, and so some of, those are some of the basic tips for just how to, how to become, become really good at conversation because none of us are as good as we think we are. Uh, and mm. somebody at University of Texas does this research. He, he finds out how well do people understand the person they're talking to. And the average person understands what's going on in the other person's head 20% of the time. And some people are pretty good. They're 55%. Some people are terrible. They're 0% and think they're 100% but we all want to get up toward 55%. And these, these concrete tips will help us get there. Yes, those are great. I was also nodding my head when you said topper because that is some, so being a topper, I don't think it's something anyone would intentionally do that and go, oh, you know, I don't want to hear it. It's all about me. But I definitely think about, I think I got that feedback maybe 10 years ago from someone who said, you know, when you, like from my perspective at the time, I thought it was empathy. I thought the way to be empathetic to someone if they said exactly as you described, oh, I don't know, I'm having this experience like you said with the child. And then you go, oh, well, when my son was that age, I tried this and that was helpful. And you're trying to be empathetic to their situation and to not seem judgmental and to kind of make them feel like, I understand how you feel because I've had a similar experience. But actually, you're right. For that person, often it could be like, I'm trying to share something with you. And actually, the best way I think to listen to that is to just say, 
respond to what they're actually saying, which is like, oh, that must be difficult for you. Or how are you going to approach that? Or instead of, you know, ask another question instead of, yeah, kind of telling your version of when that happened to you, because you are just essentially switching the focus onto your experience and not giving them your an opportunity to kind of go further if they want to. Yeah. And I read a great story that illustrates what empathy is. It was told by a guy named Rabbi Elliot Kukla. And he had a congregant who, because she had a brain injury, sometimes she would just fall to the ground. And she would just fall on the floor. And she told, she told him, you know, when I fall to the ground, people rush to help me up because most people are so uncomfortable to see an adult on the ground. Uh, but what I really need is for them to get on the ground with me. She just wants somebody to get on the ground and sit there with her until she can sort of collect herself. And so that's empathy. It's not doing what would make you feel comfortable. It's doing what makes the other person feel comfortable and understanding what that is. Um, and I should say conversational skills, when I talked about being a topper and I saw you nodding and that little gesture like nodding, like that's so affirming. And so one of the other tips I was given was be a loud listener. And you can do it just with the shake of your head. Like, and like one of the things I recommend is watch an Oprah or any really great interview on TV, watch her interview somebody with a sound off. And you see how her face is reacting to everything they say. And it makes you feel so special when somebody's listening to you that way. I've got a buddy named Andy who, when you talk to him, it's like you're talking to a Pentecostal church. He's like, yes, yes, amen, amen, preach, preach that. And I just love talking to that guy. It's so encouraging because he's a loud listener. So that's mm. another tip. Yeah, I like that. You also mentioned the word attention. Now, of course, I'm going to have to jump on that because the idea, I spoke to someone recently about this idea that giving someone your full attention and actually receiving somebody's full attention today is the ultimate luxury. So whether that is simply when you're with your partner, you know, leave your phone in another room and just have dinner together or watch a movie together or when you're, you know, yeah, watching your kids, uh, their swimming lesson or something, just do that one thing, just give them your attention. And it's so difficult for people to do because they're kind of like, well, you know, I'm busy. I need to do multitask or I need to kind of always have be on the email, be on the phone, doing something. And how many times, you know, we've all been there, myself included. I'm not saying that I don't do this as well, but you can be with a group of friends or you could be in a restaurant or you could be on a train somewhere. And it's so easy to just pick up your phone and be there and be focused on that and not focused on the person sitting right in front of you. So other than just the obvious thing of our mobile phone or social media, do you think that our attention and actually being able to be really present with someone to listen when they talk to not rush them because most things in you know for our days can be fast it's like okay people i can feel sometimes a sense from people where they kind of opposite to i suppose what you said then about active listening they're kind of nodding but like rushing you you can see they're kind of saying like get to the point get to the point and it's so unnerving when someone's kind of rushing you to say what do you want like i'm busy you're bothering me or you're taking up my time so yeah do you think that this point of attention if we find that in ourselves if we find ourselves doing that how can we become i suppose how can we practice giving someone our attention and trying to quiet those distractions and that feeling and that urge to rush yeah so Whenever we meet somebody, they're asking questions unconsciously often. Am I going to be a priority for this person? Can I trust this person? And the answers to those questions are communicated in our eyes before any words come out of our mouth. So the power of a gaze, the power of attention is just super duper powerful. Uh, there was a novelist and philosopher named Iris Murdoch who wrote that attention is the ultimate moral act, that normally we look at the world with self-serving eyes. 
that we see people as objects to be used or as a transaction that we can get something out of. But she says our goal should be to cast a just and loving attention on others. And the way you look at the world determines what you find in it. If you look at the world with fearful and suspicious eyes, you'll see threat everywhere. If you look at the world with critical eyes, you'll see flaw everywhere. But if you look at the world with generous eyes, with just and loving attention, then you'll see people doing the best they can. And so Murdoch says, we can grow by looking. And if we tend to look at somebody else in a respectful way, seeing them as a person of infinite value and dignity, then we'll see them the way they deserve to be seen. Uh, and so it's what she's describing is sort of an other-centered way of being. And one phrase I like for it is accompaniment. You think of the way a pian pianist accompanies a singer. The pianist is like looking at the singer, trying to understand what she's doing with the song and trying to embellish her take and make her shine. And so it's that way of being other-centered through the process that uh, is the ultimate act of generosity. And people light up. And you know, over the last four years, while researching the book, I, I would ask people, tell me about a time somebody really got you, somebody really saw you, and their eyes would immediately start glowing and they'd remember some times. And like some of these times weren't even very practical, or, or they weren't epic, they were like sort of every day. So one woman who was probably 40 or 42 told me, when I was 13, I had my first taste of alcohol. And I came home so drunk that when I got to the front porch of my house, I couldn't move. I just lay on the ground. I couldn't move. And my dad, who's this tough guy, came out, and I thought he was going to scream at me all the things that were already going through my head, like, I'm bad, I'm bad. And said he just scooped her up in his arms, he brought her inside, laid her on the sofa, and said, there'll be no punishment here. You've just had an experience. And decades later, she remembered that little moment. It wasn't like epic, but he understood that she did not need to be screamed at at that moment, that he, she just needed someone who would understand what was already going on in her mind, and her dad did that. And so people tell me stories like that, and that's, that's the goal, to give people those experiences. Hmm. Yeah, that's a really powerful story to hear, especially as a parent. You know, yeah. I'm sure um, people probably think, yeah, I think it's a good one to think about. Um, I want to look back, actually, we talked, you told us about diminishers. And of course, we're focusing on, okay, how can we be more, how can we be illuminators ourselves? But one thing I want to ask you is, I suppose, relationships are two way street, of course, so we can try to be illuminators, and we can try to be better listeners. But how can we, I suppose, uh, I don't want to say deal with, but you know, respond to diminishers. So if we have relationships with people, which I'm sure we all do, as I said, some can be challenging where they might have those critical eyes. So it can be the kind of person, you know, those people when you say something about something or about a project or about an idea and they've always got the first response is something negative, you know, oh, well, and they roll their eyes or they're critical. And like, so sometimes it can be quite draining that energy to try and go, oh, but it's not always simple to just avoid those people. So do you have any, uh, yeah, what tools and advice do you do you have for people to um, practice dealing with diminishers and to let it, so it doesn't affect us so much? Yeah, it's it's that's a tough one because all relationships have to be reciprocal. That's the essence of a relationship. And mm -hmm. it's hard when somebody's got their walls up or is always on the critique. It's super hard to have a reciprocal relationship. One of my sayings is, in order to behold people, you have to be willing to be beheld. You have to be willing to walk through what intimacy gateways, like we're going to start a relationship at a superficial level, but then gradually we'll reveal intimacies to each other and then we'll really get to know each other. And somebody who's not willing to do that, it's super hard. I guess the one thing I try is 
Um, first, I lead with a little curiosity to see if they reciprocate. I'm curious about this thing about you. Do they show any curiosity about you? Then I lead, then I try minor doubt. And so it could be simple as, you know, I'm, I'm having some doubts about this. Are you having some doubts uh, about your opinion about this? Uh, and that way, you're, it's a little hint of vulnerability to see if they're able of following you on the vulnerability. Mm-hmm. And then finally, getting people into narrative mode and getting them out of like, if you, have, if you find somebody that's super reciprocal or super critical, somehow get them talking about their childhood. And I find, mm-hmm. A, people love to talk about their childhood. And, you know, where, where, where'd you grow up? What was your home like? What do you want to do as a kid? And suddenly they'll be out of that defensive attack mode. And they'll, they'll be remembering something wonderful about their childhood or maybe something not so wonderful, but they will be human beings. Uh, and so you'll get them out of their that mode of presentation that they've become accustomed to, which is really all about uh, perception of threat. So we all build up defenses in childhood, defenses that we need to survive. And some of those defenses are avoidant. I think I suffered from that where I just tried to avoid emotion. And some people's defenses are aggression. The world is out to get me. I'm fighting back. Yeah. And all of our defenses, some of our deprivation, the world will not meet my needs. I'm not worthy. And all of those defenses are useful to some degree, but they're all binding us to some degree. So I need somebody to help me get out of my avoidant defenses. And so I was fortunate enough to have people in my life that addressed me in a way that let me drop the barrier of the protection that I built around myself and really brought out a different version of me. So I'm not saying it's always going to happen. If you invite me to lunch and then you talk at me for an hour and a half with no curiosity about anything I might be thinking, we probably won't be enjoying each other's company again. Like I just, some people I'm not going to get through to, but I think one is surprised by how often, and if you can get to somebody and if people got to the old version of me, then you can get to anybody. That's my rule. Mm, Okay, that's great. So you mentioned then around understanding, and I know you talk in the book about what it means to be misunderstood. Now, this is something when I saw that word, I was like, ah, I really want to get into this because I mean, I saw someone actually on a, on, I think it was online. It was a short clip of someone who said, you know, if, if you're misunderstood, you'll always, she said, you'll always be misunderstood in life sometimes by someone. And we have to accept that not everybody will understand who we are and everyone will understand our values or our intentions and not everyone will like us. And she kind of, you know, said it in this way that was very empowering, very confident and kind of said, you know, you've just got to be okay with it. But for many people, they're not, and they will constantly try to, you know, no, that's not who I am or no, that's not what I meant. Or, you know, why doesn't this person like me or understand that I'm, you know, I'm really, great if they just got to know me uh so why i guess does it bother us so much to be misunderstood and i suppose yeah what's really going on when we're being misunderstood yeah well you know babies come out of the womb looking for a face to recognize uh and they if i don't know there's these things called still face experiments where they ask moms not to rec- not to react when their kids make a bid for attention and so the baby, like six months old, will coo or will smile or do something, and the mothers just go still face. And when that happens, the babies at first are uncomfortable, then they get nervous, and within five um, seconds or 10 seconds, they're in agony. Because we evolved to be with other people who would keep us safe by looking out for us. And if we feel unseen, then we feel radically unsafe. And that urge for recognition is just 
one of our primal urges. Uh, and, you know, one of the things that influenced me to write the book was a passage in Ralph Ellison's novel, Invisible Man, where the narrator says, when people look at me, they see everything but me. They see their stereotypes, they see the surroundings around me, but they don't see me. And he talks about what agony that is, and I, in his case, because of race, but we can be misunderstood and stereotyped for all sorts of reasons. Uh, I used to be more conservative than I am now, and I'm now probably center right, center left, but people had the word conservative, and they attached that label to me, and suddenly they think I'm like pro-Donald Trump, or like that label is so powerful, they put all sorts of categories on me. And so I've learned um, to try to be legible so people can get me. Like, even in public, try to be vulnerable a little. Try to be completely honest about who I am. And with the acknowledgement, it's not going to please everybody. I mean, it, it was, it's been sort of helpful for me. Like, Taylor Swift is like one of the most popular singers on the planet right now. But there are a lot of people who don't like Taylor Swift. And she wrote those albums a couple albums ago on, about all the haters and all that stuff. Uh, and, um, but, and so if Taylor Swift's not going to be universally popular, none of us are going to be universally popular, and it's okay. And that ultimately we're going to be judged and should evaluate ourselves by the people who like us, not the people who hate us. And as long mm -hmm. as the people we admire have some good opinion of us, we're probably doing something okay. Yes. And it is such a, I mean, I love that analogy. First of all, like you said, some people don't like Taylor Swift. Who are these people? But then also I feel, I feel like that with other things that are very popular that I don't like. And I'm kind of like so many people love, I don't know, a particular show. And I'm just like, I could not watch the show if you paid me and had stuck, you know, glued me in front of the screen. So yeah, I like that actually. And I'm, I don't know, I think that some people maybe find it more challenging than others when it comes to being misunderstood. And maybe, as you said, it is probably the complexity of the layering of whether it's race, whether it's gender, whether it's, there's so many things that of course, I think, you know, as a person of color, we know there are more stereotypes typically attached to us just from the way we look before we, before our work is seen, before we maybe enter into a space, before we open our mouths to speak. And that I know, um, yeah, I think it's it's very complex, isn't it? This challenge between understanding that, okay, maybe some people make false assumptions or judgments and you have to kind of, I think, learn the balance between it really impacting and affecting you and maybe even holding you back in certain scenarios to rather than just saying, oh, I just don't care because I could say, oh, I don't care. But so part of me does, you know? Um, so yeah. yeah, it's very complex. Yeah. And you told me, I've, I'm, I've been told this by friends, by black friends in the States that when they walk into a room, they have to think about, well, what version of myself can I bring into this room? Mm -hmm. uh, and as a white guy, I don't really don't have to make that thought. I, I just go in there and the way I'm seen is probably pretty accurate to the, who I really am. But for some people, the way they're seen is not accurate to who they are. And there's so, mm -hmm. all sorts of calculations that have to go on in, in people's heads, depending on their social location and, and depending on race and things like that. I don't know if it's oh, that absolutely. ring a bell. Oh, absolutely. hundred percent. And also, David, I think the way I would describe it to someone listening is probably more not so much about how do I show up in this environment, but often how will I be received? So, for example, regardless of what you're wearing, you might, you know, your wardrobe might change a little bit. But regardless of what you're wearing, as you said, you might go into a space and as a white man going into, say, for example, airport security or going into an event space, you're probably going to be greeted in the same way. 
most times. Whereas I think when it's most noticeable to me is the way that other people greet or respond or react to me in different environments based upon, for example, if at that particular moment I might be dressed a certain way, I might have my hair a certain way, I might present in a certain way, and I'll be received very differently to if I was dressed completely differently, let's say on a, on a, a day where I might have been to the gym and I'm wearing a tracksuit and I have no makeup on and I'm wearing trainers and I might be, you know, driving to get my son from a football match, very casual, you know, I'll be received and treated very differently to if I was, you know, dressed differently. And I think that interaction piece is something I've noticed. And sometimes people have been surprised. I've talked about this recently where people are surprised, you know, you turn up to deliver a keynote, for example, at a tech event and people go, oh, you, can I help you? You know, why are you backstage? You know, and you say, oh, I'm here to get mic'd on a keynote speaker. And they're kind of surprised and they have to almost for a second, maybe they notice, maybe they don't notice that bias and then say, oh, okay, can I just, you know, let me help you. Whereas with my husband, you know, he's a, he's a white guy who does similar work to me sometimes. And he never has people that are shocked to see him there. They just go, hello, sir, welcome in. You know, there's no kind of, it doesn't matter if he's wearing a hoodie or if he's wearing a shirt it's the same. His, his kind of interactions yeah. in the world tend to, tend to be generally more consistent. And I think for, for black people and people of color, that is definitely not the case. It's, it's, yeah. it's yeah, it's very inconsistent. So interesting. I'm definitely treated the same wherever I go. Like I, I don't, I hadn't had that thought that you just expressed. Yeah, interesting. Yeah. Yeah. So another part I wanted to talk to you about is change and, you know, this idea of how do you understand a person and know a person? Okay. You need to be curious about them. You need to listen to them. You need to accept them and acknowledge them. But then of course, we're not cemented versions of ourselves who never change. And some people change a lot in a short period of time. Other people, it might be slower. And so how do we, I suppose, accept people for who they are, accept when they change, when they choose to change without maybe, we've all heard, you know, that again, the critical person that says, oh, you're doing that now, or or that's not who you used to be, or that's not who you really are, if they've known someone for maybe 20 years. But of course, we're not the same as who we were 20 years ago. We all change. So how can we be more accepting of, of other yeah. people when they change? Well, I'd mentioned this guy at the University of Texas who studies how well we understand each other. Uh, his name was William Ickes. And one of the disturbing findings from his research is that the longer many husbands and wives are married, the less they know about each other. And that's because when they yeah. first got married, they were deeply in love and they developed the model of who that other person was. And then that other person changed and they didn't update their models. And mm -hmm. so they, they become less knowledgeable about their marriage partner because they haven't updated their models. Uh, and so, you know, so I have a friend who says, you know, I've been married to the same, to seven different guys, but they all inhabited the same body. <laughs> and I, I, this rings true for me and I bet it for a lot of people, when you go home to visit your parents when you're in your 20s or 30s, I find you've been away to university or been away at a job, moved away, and then you come home for a visit, and they still treat you like you're 12, uh, and they haven't really updated their models. And so you got to keep updating their models and be aware that people uh, can change radically. And I have found, as someone who's gone through pretty significant changes in the last 15 years of my life, and hopefully become a more open, more vulnerable person capable of having this conversation with you, um, uh, that the hardest, I, with new people I'm just meeting, I, I find it easy to be more vulnerable, more open, more emotional. But with some of my old friends, I'm still stuck in the structure of the relationship we built. And so there's a therapist who says that in every marriage, there are three characters. So there's the husband, the wife, and then the marriage itself is its own character. Mm -hmm. And the marriage is the habit of interaction. 
So with a lot of my old friends, my habits of interactions were sort of emotionally distant, emotionally reserved, uh, a little withdrawn. And I find that I slip into those old patterns when I'm with them. And so I have to mm-hmm. remind myself, no, I'm, I'm going to be who I really am now. Uh, and I just this week, I had a conversation with a guy. Our kids used to go to school with each other. And we were talking, and he, he told me how much I changed. And he said, you know, I used to think you really disliked me. And I never had any negative emotion toward the guy, but I just wasn't really particularly expressive, uh, and I was a little reserved. And so he interpreted my reserve as dislike. Mm-hmm. And so I told him, no, I've, I've always really admired you, uh, and, but I just wasn't capable of communicating it before. So hopefully he updated his models of me. <laughs> yeah wow it's fascinating the part about marriages and I think long relationships because even long relationships as you mentioned going home to parents or siblings you know people change so much but it's not just the way you know you said going home they treat you like you're 12 but also maybe people when they go home maybe they act a bit more like their <laughs> yeah, you know right. younger self yeah exactly and I think it's really interesting isn't it how certain relationships if they are long have these like legacy as you said patterns and behaviors and sometimes I think it takes a real uh, acknowledgement you know sometimes a conversation you know difficult conversations we don't like to have discomfort or dis- difficult conversations thoughtful disagreement we call it where we say actually you know what we used to I don't know interact in this way or we used to share this thing and I don't that's not it doesn't work for me anymore you know and that doesn't mean you have to fall out and it's like okay we can't have a relationship anymore but I think it's really a challenging thing I think change I think especially I'm someone so I'm in my mid thirties now, uh, I think I've seen, I'm definitely seeing a lot of change within my peers. So whether it's people becoming, becoming parents, you know, becoming mothers, that's a real change and identity change. People's whole lifestyles, you know, their careers might change. People might be getting divorced and then that's a big change. And you know, I've had lots of change. And I think it's just such an interesting thing that some people seem to embrace and love. I, I'm always, I'm real champion of change. You know, if anything, I think maybe too much because I'm always encouraging people, you know, try it, why not? Like try this, try that. Like, why would you go back to the same place? If you've been there before, try somewhere new. Um, but other people, yeah, I know find it uncomfortable and they kind of, yeah, question or oh, why is, why that change? Why do you feel the need to change? And it's just a very uh, interesting and, and divisive thing. And I think some people really don't know how to how to navigate the relationship with a friend or a sibling or something when when they feel like there is that, that element of change and one person's got a new goal or a new priority or a new focus in their life. Yeah. I, I want to ask my readers over 70 um, to write life reports about themselves. And, like, and one of the things I learned was a cliche, but... I think like 5,000 readers wrote in about themselves and no, not one of them regretted a risk they took. Even if the risk didn't work out, they were all glad they took it. The second thing was the happiest people divided their life into chapters. And, and they said, this five years is a chapter in my life and this, here's what this chapter is about. And so they didn't ask the question, what should I do with my life? That's too big a question. But what is this five years about? And then you saw these great changes. There's a, a study called the Grant Study that follows a bunch of guys who were at Harvard in the 1940s, and it followed them all through life until most of them died in the early 2000s or so. And one of the guys was named Andrew Newman. And as in college, he was a prig. He was stiff, rigid, unfriendly, not particularly popular. And he was like that as a young dad. His daughter said he was a perfectionist who really tortured his daughters. Uh, was not a good and loving dad. And then in his 50s, he decided the, the world's poor with the responsibility of the world's rich. 
So he moves from the States to Sudan to help farmers have data on their farm prices and things like that. Then he moves back to Texas and becomes a city planner. Then he teaches in a community college. And the interviewers go back, and they're interviewing him as part of the study every couple of years. And one interview, when he's in his 60s, they come down, and he's suddenly this gloriously warm guy. He wants to give everybody a big hug, serve them presents, play games. And the interviewer said, I was just transfixed by the guy. And when he was in his 60s, they sent him the interview transcripts from his interviews back when he was in his 20s at college. And he sent back the transcripts and said, you sent these to the wrong guy. This wasn't me. I gave none of these answers. None of these things happened to me. And they said, no, that was you. That was you. You just don't remember who you were. And you've changed so much, you don't even recognize yourself anymore. And I think we all do that. We all invent an earlier version of ourselves so it seems more coherent. But there's often just a lot of changes. You mentioned parenting, divorce, unemployment. Change happens. Yeah. Wow. That's really fascinating. And also what I like about that part that you said about chapters, I sometimes call it seasons, the season of your life you're in, is that if it's great, then of course we want it to last forever and we're like, this is great. But if it's not, then knowing that it is a chapter and it is a season and it's not your entire life, it's not your entire identity, I think is super powerful and helpful because we'll all face challenges and adversity, I think, throughout our lives. No one is exempt from adversity. But when you're in something, you can feel like it's going to last forever. So I also think it's quite nice to remember this is not my life. This is a moment in my life that is difficult and there'll be a new chapter at some point. Yeah, Isaac Dennison, the novelist said, everything is survivable, survivable if it can be put into a story. And so mm. if you can say this dark moment is part of a story of what's gonna be recovery and growth, uh, then you can endure anything. Uh, and you know, I, I've found the toughest adversity to go through is your first big adversity because you don't know you can get, that you have the resources to get through it. But most of us get through it and we're either broken by adversity, which means we, we protect ourselves and shut down, or we're broken open. We get more vulnerable, more generous, more available, frankly, to be hurt in the future, but we decide I'm gonna live this way. Uh, uh, and so when I ask people, tell me about the time, tell me about who, what experience made you who you are. Nobody says, oh, I had a glorious vacation on the beach. like. It's our, it's not our happy moments that make us who we are. It's, it's those moments of adversity and learning. I'm writing this question down, David. What experience made you who you are? What a wonderful question to ask someone. I really, really like that. That's yeah. really great. I, I have a friend named Monica Guzman who asked people, why you? Why was it you who started this podcast? Why was it you who felt called to start this company? Why you? And that's, that's just like a general question. Why you? Why are you doing what you do? Yeah, I'm sure people will be illuminated when they get the opportunity to share that you know to, to share that with you hey i'm ryan reynolds recently i asked mint mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation they said yes and then when i asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts they said what the f*** are you talking about you insane hollywood ass so to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, 
So before we move on to the last part of the show, I could talk to you for a lot longer, but before we move on to the last part of the show, which is of course about the power hour and the concept of that, and I ask every guest to tell us about that. I'm interested to ask you, I suppose, uh, a more personal question. So do you have kids, David? Yes, I have three kids. They're in their 20s or now 30, so they're grown. Okay, so the reason I ask is because I think as a parent and as a parent and a stepmother, so I have a 12-year-old son and I have a stepdaughter who's nine and a stepson who's five, um, I think that as our children get older and maybe even when they're when they're really young, I believe that we get to know them. So this, you know, how to know a person, I believe we don't have children and then mold them and sculpt them and that they're mini versions of us. Like they're not, they're, they can be maybe very similar, but they can also be very, very different. And we have to get to know them and we have to continue to get to know them because I'm sure, as I said, my son's only 12. I'm sure he's going to be different when he's 20 or 30. So yeah. How have you as a, as a father, how have you navigated parenthood and how do you, what advice would you give to people to, for how they can get to know their own children? Yeah. First, uh, play with your kids as much as possible. That would be my one advice is when my son, my youngest son or my oldest son was born, he was born in Brussels and we were living there. And the, the son wouldn't come up till like 10 a.m. in the winter and he would wake up at 4 a.m. And so I played with him for like six hours every morning. And when he was about 12 months or so, I remember having this thought like, I know him better than I've ever known anybody because we, and he's probably knows me better than any, anybody's ever known me because we've been so open in play. And just when people are playing, they're just naturally themselves. Whether you're playing with toy trains or playing, having a catch, there's there's a form of communication like high five, trash talk, passing the ball in basketball. And so play is a weird way to, a very effective way to get to know somebody because they're themselves. And then the second thing I've learned is that there's, as you say, you're not, being a parent is humbling. You're not going to form your kids. <laughs> They're going to, they have their own natures from the moment they come their first day on earth. And there's a saying that every family produces the perfect child. Unfortunately, the traits of those childs are spread throughout all the different kids in the family. So <laughs> each kid is distinct. Uh, and so there's no right, one right way to parent. There's only the right way to parent your child. And mm -hmm. so, for example, if you're, if you're a child who's, um, very uh, ranks high on the trade of neuroticism, very sensitive to negative emotions. And you're a little low on the trade of agreeableness of being kind. You're a little gruff. And so if you're talking in a voice that feels like natural and flat to you, to that child who's sensitive to negative emotions, they hear that as screaming. And mm -hmm. so you have to be aware of how they're perceiving what you're offering. It's not the same way you're perceiving it. And so you have to adjust. And then often what we do as parents is we try to get our kids to go against their natural tendencies. So if we've got a kid who's super extroverted, is always running around, sometimes we need to say, well, why don't you just slow down a little here and just read and, and think. If you've got a kid who's uh, not a risk taker, then encouraging them to take the risks uh, is probably the right thing to do, just to go against their natural tendencies. Uh, and... Mm. I have found, then finally, the one thing uh, you have ahead of you, which I, I will say I, I experienced, was when the relationship between parent and child switches from adult to child to adult to adult. And I found that just tremendously rewarding. So about eight or nine years ago, I had been divorced, and I was on the phone with my daughter, who was then living in California, and I was in New York. And I said, what are you doing this weekend? And she says, oh, I'm a little nervous. I'm about to meet my boyfriend's 
parents for the first time. And so I say to her, well, that's funny because I'm a little nervous. I'm about to meet my girlfriend's parents for the first time. And in that little moment, what had been an adult-to-child relationship turned into an adult-to-adult relationship that we could deal with each other. Yeah, we're, we're facing the same problems here uh, yeah. and same concerns. And it, it, was a, it was a nice transition to go through. Well, yeah, and it's really hard to imagine when your children are so young. You know, you can't imagine that day, but of course, you know, it, 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 will, it will come. So, yeah, thank yeah. you. Thank you for sharing that with yeah, us. Yeah, I find as your kids age, the amount of time you, it takes to be a parent goes down. The anxiety levels, however, go up. <laughs> oh, no. Okay. <laughs> yeah, I know what you mean, actually. I feel like in some um, areas, it's kind of still feels a little bit like, I don't know if this is the right word, but like contained, you know, like right. you're with them a lot of the time, you know, even things around, I don't know how much they sleep, how much they eat. You know, obviously I'm, that's kind of an area of focus for me because I work in wellbeing. So, you know, things like how much they sleep, you know, the foods that they eat, you know, exercise, going to clubs, you know, running club, tennis club, all this kind of things. But of course, you know, the less time that they're in your immediate care, the more choices they can make for themselves. And, you know, once, yeah, it's, there's, a, there's a thing that element of, um, I guess yeah curating again curating like an environment for them which is optimum or that is positive or that is you know good and I think the world isn't you know that's not the world that's not anyone's life is it so I think it's uh yeah I think I'm gonna struggle with that idea um even traveling recently I've been trying to really encourage my son because he's a he's a a peanut allergy kid so you know do you have your EpiPen do you have your EpiPen is it in your bag and I'm like trying to encourage the fact that soon I'm not going to be necessarily on a flight with you you have to think about these things um yeah wow parenting <laughs> it's yep. a challenge okay well let's talk about the power hour it is the first hour of every day and for me, it's been transformative for, for years. I've been doing this now. I wrote a whole book about this idea. And simply just that when the world is busy, so many things will demand our attention and our energy from the minute we open our eyes in the morning if we do not intentionally cultivate a bit of time to say, okay, when I wake up, what do I do? What's the first thing that I do? What's the first thing that I do? What's the first hour? So David, could you tell us in your first hour, firstly, what t- what time do you typically wake up and what does your first hour include? Yeah, I, I wake up typically at seven and my first hour is the same thing as my second, third and fourth hour. I write every morning. So I write seven days a week, um, probably 330 days a year. Uh, and so my wife, when we were married, we thought she thought she was going to enjoy these long leisurely breakfasts where we could talk about the world. But I really don't talk to another human being until I've written a thousand words. And so we yeah. have great dinners and lunches, but we don't have great breakfasts. Uh, and once I used to wear a Fitbit and it would tell me I was napping between seven and noon. Uh, wow. And I wasn't napping. My blood pressure had gone down because I was doing what I was put on this earth to do. And so my mind is most fertile in that first hour. And mm-hmm. so I'm usually like, that's when new thoughts are really coming to me. And so I, ha- I, my rule is the more creative the endeavor, the more disciplined the routine should be. And so I do this thing every 7 to 12, 7 to 12, 7 to 12. Um, you know, I, I think um, Tony Morrison would go to a, a hotel room to write, and there would only be five things in the room, which would be a table and a chair, a typewriter, a Bible, and a bottle of brandy. And she would just go, go into that room every morning and she would do her writing. Uh, there was a writer, John Cheever, who lived in New York. And every morning he would get up, put on his suit, his one suit that he owned, 
He would ride the elevator down to the basement of his building where he had a, a little office. He would take off his suit. He would write in his underwear. And then at noon, he would put the suit back on, ride the elevator up, and make himself lunch. And that was his routine. So I have that's my power hour. My I'm, I'm writing and thinking, and uh, right in front of me, I always have Post-it notes. And mm-hmm. so I'm, I'm writing thoughts down on Post-it notes. Great. Wow. I really, really like that, especially as someone, as an author, as a writer, as someone who tries to uh, yeah, share my ideas with the world. I often, I think what you said is very powerful of, you know, every day, you know, I'm doing it every day. I'm not doing it on Monday and Wednesday or th- it's every day. And I suppose for me, that's like movement. You know, I'm, I'm a runner, I'm an endurance runner and I move. And if for me, I just move every day. It's just a matter of when and how far and how long, but writing obviously I have deadlines I have things I have to do and I will find myself doing the strangest things instead of doing the writing the other day I did it and I was like okay I have this many hours to write I'm just going to clean up these things tidy up and I'll tell you I'll tell you honestly this is what I ended up doing and I noticed myself doing this I'd taken some photograph photographs that I'd got printed and I was looking for frames and then I was cutting the photo to see if it would fit the frame. And then I thought maybe it will look nice on the shelf. Maybe it'll look better on this shelf. Actually, maybe this this would look great with a black and white photo. Let me find a black and white. This is what I was doing instead of writing because it was like, you know, a procrastination and avoidance. And so as soon as you said that, I was like, this was the perfect podcast episode for me to hear because <laughs> tomorrow morning, no procrastination, no excuses, just go straight and start the writing. Just just do the writing. So yeah. thank you for that. And you did that. Yeah. It's like any habit. If you do it a lot, it becomes a habit and then it's hard, easier to do. Yeah, for sure. That's why I said with movement, other people will say the same to me. They're like, oh, Adrian, with all the best intentions, you know, I, I was going to go and I didn't. Whereas for me, I just get my trainers, off I go, I run, I come back, it's done. So yeah, we all we all have our things that we need to uh, to work on, but that's why I love this show. That's why I'm so grateful, David, that we were able to to connect and to record this, this episode. I'm really sure that the listeners will enjoy it. And if you have, then please do share it with someone else who you think would enjoy this conversation. And of course, dive into David's book, How to Know a Person. It is available in the UK now. So check that out. I'll leave a note in the show notes to that as well. Thank you so much, David. Oh, it's so much fun to be with you. Thanks for inviting me. I'll be back next week with another episode. 